I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to the latest of our We the People Constitutional Podcasts. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. Uh, and today we have a thrilling new installment of one of the most exciting features uh, that we run, and that is Ask Jeff. But it's even more exciting than usual because we have a guest host for Ask Jeff, uh, and that is Michael Gerhardt. Michael Gerhardt is Samuel Ash, Distinguished Professor of Constitutional Law at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. He is one of the country's leading constitutional historians, a great friend of the National Constitution Center, and I'm so thrilled that he'll be here both to ask the questions that have been submitted by you, our great listeners, on Twitter and social media, and also to answer some of those questions himself. Uh, so we're going to jump uh, right in. We have a series of great questions that you've submitted. And uh, first of all, uh, welcome, M Michael. So glad you're here. Thank you, Jeff. I appreciate the chance to be visiting with you. It's just great. Uh, well, why don't uh, you tell us the first questions that sure. our uh, listeners have submitted? Here's the first question. What are the salaries of the Supreme Court justices? Are their clerks paid or are they interns? Excellent. Okay. So the justices of the Supreme Court at the moment get $244,000 a year. Uh, the Chief Justice gets a little bit more. He gets $255,000. Uh, that's a lot more than their initial salary, which was $3,500 a year in 1789 and 4000 uh, for the Chief Justice. Uh, they can earn extra money in investments and royalties. You know, many of them, of course, are authors, and it turns out some of them have done pretty well. Justice Scalia in 2014 reported $77,000 in royalties. Justice Breyer got $11,000. Uh, both of us are authors, and I, I, I don't know about you, but I've, I've never quite uh, earned out at that level. So there must be a, a national hunger, as we know from these podcasts, for uh, books like Justice Scalia's about statutory interpretation. Uh, the clerks also get paid. They get $75,000 a year. That doesn't sound like a lot. However... Big law firms at the moment will pay Supreme Court clerks from two hundred to three hundred thousand dollars a year as a signing bonus. So, uh, talk about delayed gratification. Uh, a Supreme Court clerkship ends up being quite lucrative. Yes, and they also get wonderful pensions where they basically get to keep making the same amount of money even when they leave office. That's right. Uh, and and why is that the case? It's a case uh, because um, Congress is very generous. <laughs> they give them wonderful packages. And did they also want to uh, ensure that just judges didn't stay on forever just for the money and would be able to retire? Right. They also wanted to make sure that after a while, just judges or justices would feel comfortable stepping down because they continue to be paid. That's great. And Justice Stevens, for example, has retired. He retired in 2010. He continues to get his uh, lifetime pay of $213,900. It sounds like the pay is capped at the amount it was when you retired. Yes, uh, which is still a pretty good deal. That is a pretty good deal. Yeah. Uh, although, of course, the justices earn those uh, salaries by sometimes sitting by designation on circuit courts and uh, continuing to educate the public. Right, the and I also suspect it's an incentive for them to take the job uh, so they know that if they serve long enough, they keep getting paid and That'll keep them happy. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. There'd be no other reason to become a Supreme Court justice. <laughs> <laughs> okay, next question. Republicans believe the Supreme Court of the United States is making law by deciding cases such as same-sex marriage. They've said they would like to have legislators make law and not have the Supreme Court of the United States able to decide it's un un unconstitutional. 
Any chance they could get their wish? Well, people say that the courts are making law when they disagree with the decision. Basically, that's uh, like judicial activism. It tends to be an epithet for decisions that people disagree with. And the real question is, what does the Constitution require? What's, what does it mean to say that judges should interpret the law rather than make it? To answer that question, you need a, a theory of constitutional interpretation. Now, we both teach constitutional law, and whenever I begin class on the first day, I say two things. First, don't assume it's all politics. If you do, you'll miss everything that is beautiful and constraining and different about constitutional law. The point of this is to understand the best arguments on both sides so that you can make up your mind, and that's what we're trying to do here at the Constitution Center. But then I just talk about six methodologies of interpretation and say that much of the class is designed to familiarize students with these methodologies so they can use them uh, and make up their mind about which ones they find most persuasive. So I'm going to set out the methodologies I introduced and very briefly define them, and I'll ask you which ones you do in your class. So I say there are six methodologies. First, text. Second, original understanding. Third, history and tradition. Fourth, precedent. Fifth, pragmatism. And sixth, natural law or moral arguments. And let's see if we can give constitutional law in two minutes, <laughs> briefly trying to define each of those. A textualist, uh, like Justice uh, Scalia, says you should interpret the law uh, simply in light of the text, and if the text is clear, there's no reason to, construct, to consult original understanding. Uh, second, original understanding. An originalist, and, and Justice Scalia sometimes describes himself as uh, that, says that we should interpret the text in light of the original understanding of its framers and ratifiers. Uh, most originalists say the intentions of the ratifiers are more significant than that of the framers, since it was the ratifiers, uh, we the people, who gave the text the status of supreme law. Third, history and tradition. That's different than original understanding. Original understanding asks, what did the framers think in 1789, or when the 14th Amendment was uh, uh, ratified in 1868? Uh, the history and tradition approach says, over the course of time, which rights have been recognized as fundamental by the traditions and collective conscience of the people? So you might look, for example, to state constitutions in figuring out whether a particular liberty, like the right to uh, privacy or the right to marriage or uh, so forth, was embedded in history and tradition, and those traditions can change over time. Fourth precedent, you might just look at what the courts have said before about an issue, Justice Souter was a great uh, defender of precedent, and the court has various theories for when precedent should be overturned, when they shouldn't. Fifth, pragmatism. Justice Stephen Breyer is a pragmatist and says that courts should look at the practical consequences of their decisions and ensure that the court functions as a, a partner with the president and Congress in making democracy work. And Justice Breyer's books, which we now saw that he earned $11,000 in royalties on, books like Active Liberty talk about the court's role in pragmatically functioning in American democracy. And sixth, and maybe most controversially, I don't know if you uh, agree, but most interestingly, uh, natural law or moral philosophy. Some justices say that we should consult abstract theories of justice uh, in uh, giving the words of the framers their best and most meaningful instantiation. When Justice Anthony Kennedy, for example, said in upholding Roe v. Wade, at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own conception of meaning, of the universe, and the mystery of human life. He was defining the liberty clause of the 
14th Amendment at a high level of abstraction, so much so that it might, I think, be called a, a natural law or moral reasoning approach. So those are my six. Which ones do you use when you teach common law? I think I pretty much come out the same place, Jeff, although I get there maybe by a slightly different route. Um, uh, I often begin my constitutional law classes the same way, I, and I also tell the, my students uh, there are no right answers, but some answers are more correct than others. Yes. And the trick is um, to understand that what makes answers more correct than others is a knowledge of all these different modes we're talking about. So here is my list, which I think ends up being pretty much the same as yours, although maybe phrased a little differently. I, I talk about text, of course, the, the great text of the Constitution of the United States, structure. Uh, Charles Black at Yale Law School used to say that was the single most important mode of constitutional interpretation. So if you think of the Constitution as like an architectural design, what does that building or what does that structure look like when you put it together? What, what inferences can you draw from it? Original meaning, uh, moral reasoning, pragmatism. Judge uh, Richard Posner is also a great pragmatist. He thinks everything in constitutional law comes down to balancing costs and benefits against each other. Um, ethos or national identity, uh, sometimes called the spirit of the law. What do we think of that as a possible mode of interpretation? Of course, precedent, um, Supreme Court's decisions and other judicial decisions, what do they tell us? And last but certainly not least, historical practices. Um, what, what does Congress and what do other decision makers uh, who are not judges think about the Constitution? I love your list. Your emphasis on structure is so important, and I think I'm absolutely going to add that uh, to mine. It's, it's a central modality. Give me an example of national identity or ethos. Sure, and it's come up, I think, a lot in the terrorism cases or in the debate over terrorism, um, and it, most particularly as it relates to torture. And we oftentimes hear people say, well, Americans, uh, in this country, torture isn't something we do as Americans, just not consistent with what our, our principles happen to be. Um, I suppose the alternative way of thinking about it is we only can preserve that way of life if we use the most rigorous modes of interrogation, and they may include ter torture. Interesting. Uh, out, out of curiosity, is there a book about the methodologies of constitutional interpretation? Sure. sure. Phil Bobbitt, uh, I think, has written quite well about that topic um, uh, in his uh, famous book called Constitutional Fate. Yep. Um, and he goes through all of these. Yeah. Great. I think for our listeners, it's so important to master these methodologies because you really can't engage a constitutional conversation without at least being familiar with the, the, the terms under which it's conducted. And you can make up your own mind about which you find more convincing. You can mix and match them. Some people are pragmatic textualists. Others are living originalists. Uh, but it's really exciting to be able to learn about these modalities of constitutional interpretation. So great question. What's the next one? Okay, the next question is, why does the Supreme Court of the United States wait until June to deliver opinions? Is it to avoid reactions to individual rulings that could pressure the court in rulings yet to be made that term? Finally, what is the source of the practice? Well, one simple answer may be they really want to get out of town after delivering the most controversial decisions. Uh, after Chief Justice Roberts decided the Affordable Care Act case in 2011, he went to a D.C. Circuit Conference, and he joked that he planned to teach a summer course in Malta. He said, Malta, you know, is an impregnable fortress. It seemed like a good idea. Uh, and uh, William O. Douglas uh, was famous for just hopping on the uh, plane or train and, and going out to Washington State as soon as the court was out of session, and sometimes when business came up afterward, he was impossible to reach because there was no telephone out at his cabin then. But uh, basically, there's a statute that says that the Supreme Court's term begins the first Monday in October. 
the Supreme Court's website says the term is divided between sittings when the justices hear the cases and give out their opinions and recesses when they consider the cases and opinions. It's basically two weeks intervals for each. Um, and cases come out when they're ready, but the most controversial cases take longer to decide than others. Um, it, it might be useful here to just remind our listeners exactly how the court decides cases. Um, so they uh, hear, uh, first of all, they receive uh, briefs from the parties, which you can read online, and, and uh, then they hear arguments in the courtroom, and you can read the transcripts of the oral arguments and sometimes hear the audio. And then they go back to their private conference room. And in this room, they're alone. There are no clerks or secretaries or assistants admitted. When there's a urgent message, uh, the junior justice, uh, right now Justice Kagan, answers the door. I was wondering, what's the urgent message? Call your broker or something like that. But uh, when, they, when they really need to be reached, uh, they get the urgent message. So then they discuss the cases, and they discuss them in order of seniority. The chief justice, uh, by virtue of his position, is considered most senior, and he speaks first. And that's really the source of one of his two only powers, the ability to frame uh, a case by describing it and speaking first in conference. Then the justices go around the table in order of seniority. Chief, uh, Justice Scalia is next most uh, senior, uh, down to uh, Justice Kagan, the most junior justice. And then they vote. If the chief justice is in a majority, that is, if he's one of five justices who want to support a particular result, he can either write the decision himself or assign it to the justice who best reflects his views. If he's in dissent, then the senior associate justice in the majority, often Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg for the liberals, is a kind of shadow chief. She can either write it herself or assign it to the justice who best reflects her views. That power of assignment is really the chief justice's. It's his second, but it's the most important power. Chief Justice Roberts has said that's my my only power. You know, he's first among equals, has the same vote as everyone else, but he can assign the decision or write it. And that's why, uh, first of all, you see Justice Kennedy getting so many of the most important decisions because as the swing vote, um, either Justice Roberts or Justice Ginsburg will assign him a decision to ensure that he stays in the majority and doesn't switch his vote and go to the other side. Um, and it also explains a bit why all the most controversial cases come out in June, because after a decision has been assigned, then the justice who's writing it will circulate a draft, and it goes to all the justices, and they can uh, join it or not. Uh, they may ask for omissions or uh, additions. They can ask for language changes. Finally, when they're ready, the just justice will write, please join me, which means I, I join. And then once there are all, all the justices have joined or uh, uh, dissented, the decision comes out because uh, the controversial cases can take a lot more discussion. Uh, they take longer to decide, and that tends to be why they come out in June. But June is complete crunch time for the court. And and we know from the Affordable Care Act case, a, a lot of stuff gets done at the last minute, just as we see under any tight deadline. Uh, the, according to news reports, the Chief Justice changed his uh, vote in the Affordable Care Act uh, late in the game, and then the justice had to scramble to release it. That's also why sometimes uh, the, the decisions are issued so quickly that a decision that was originally written as a, a majority opinion but becomes a dissent may still contain something like C infra or C supra, suggesting it was originally on the opposite side of the page. Uh, so I think that's uh, that's the gist of why the cases come come out late. Um, 
Any, anything to add or next question? Um, maybe just one other little thing. Uh, of course, the Supreme Court's ca um, load has increased over the years. Yeah. Um, and perhaps to the point where uh, it becomes more of a necessity for them to sort of get to the harder cases later. Um, just trying to get work, work through that increased load to some extent means that they'll get to the harder cases later. It takes longer to get a consensus. Are they, they hearing more cases or fewer? Uh, generally, although this isn't perfectly linear, uh, they are probably hearing more cases. Um, but the load itself has been kind of grown and shrunk a little bit over the last several years. And broadly, how many cases do they uh, are they asked to hear, and how many do they hear? Uh, I think they end up hearing argument roughly in about 80 to 100, um, and obviously they get more and more petitions every year. Yeah. It's something like uh, 100 t times that? Uh, what, what, what percentage of the... Uh, it's a tiny, tiny fraction. Yeah. Tiny fraction of the cases. Well, this relates to our next question, so yes. let's ask it. How often does the Supreme Court of the United States hear original jurisdiction cases? Any landmark original jurisdiction cases? Uh, great question, uh, uh, and we'll look to the Constitution to uh, answer that. But the question reminds us, generally the court doesn't have to hear any uh, cases that it doesn't want to. It chooses to hear 80 cases a year um, uh, and decides not to hear most other cases. The best way of getting your case heard in the Supreme Court is if there's a disagreement among the lower courts, if there's a circuit split. Uh, in the Affordable Care Act case, uh, the appellate courts were divided about whether or not the Affordable Care Act's mandate uh, was or was not uh, consistent with the Constitution. So the court took the case to resolve that conflict and ensure a uniformity of law throughout the land. But there is a tiny category of cases called original jurisdiction cases that the court has to hear whether it wants to or not. Uh, Section 1, Article 3 of the Constitution uh, gives uh, the judicial power of the federal government to, quote, one Supreme Court and in such inferior courts as Congress might decide to establish. Uh, and then the Constitution grants the court original jurisdiction in certain cases. Uh, Section 2 of Article 3 says, quote, in all cases affecting ambassadors, other public ministers and councils, and those in which a state shall be a party, the Supreme Court shall have original jurisdiction in all the other cases before mentioned, the Supreme Court shall have appellate jurisdiction, both as to law and fact, with such exceptions and under such regulations as Congress shall make. So what are those cases of original jurisdictions, cases affecting ambassadors and other public ministers and councils and those in which a state shall be a party? First of all, it turns out they're really rare. Uh, the Cornell Legal Information Institute, which is a great website, says the court hears about one or two original jurisdiction cases a year. The Federal Judicial Center says between 1789 and 1959, the court has given written opinions in only 123 original jurisdiction cases. Um, these cases include, crucially, disputes between states. A famous one is South Carolina against Katzenbach, 1966, the court considers a constitutional challenge to provisions of the Voting Rights Act of 1965. The state of South Carolina actually said Congress had no power to pass the Voting Rights Act, and the Supreme Court disagreed upholding that act, not under Congress's power to enforce the Equal Protection Clause, which might have been the hope of the framers of that clause, but instead under the commerce power, uh, Congress's power to regulate interstate commerce, um, which was a decision of the Kennedy administration. Uh, there was another famous case involving Ellis Island, uh, which was original jurisdiction. Tell us about that. 
Yeah, so the Supreme Court of the United States appointed Paul Verkyle, special master, to sort of oversee a dispute between New Jersey and New York over which of those owned um, Ellis Island. So it became a very heated dispute. And because of the water shared by New York and New Jersey, they have often had disputes about who controls the water and anything basically that runs either across that water or happens to exist uh, in, in that water. And Ellis Island happens to be one of them. And that was a very um, heated dispute, but luckily the Supreme Court of the United States uh, decided and there wasn't a civil war. Excellent. And and New Jersey won, which uh, is a fine thing here at the Nonpartisan Constitutional Center. <laughs> right. We equally favor the rights of New York and New Jersey. Right. Um, two great states. Two right. great states. <laughs> <laughs> Next question. If the, United, uh, if the Constitution grants Congress jurisdiction over D.C., the District of Columbia, can it adjourn the Supreme Court or will, uh, since they work in D.C.? Well, really, we're talking about two different uh, questions. Whatever power Congress has over the Supreme Court doesn't come from its power over D.C. It comes from Article I of the Constitution, which gives Congress the power to establish tribunals inferior to the Supreme Court, and from Article Three, which we've been quoting from and has a bunch of relevant uh, provisions, including the power to – I'm looking in my National Constitution Center pocket constitution – uh, Article 3 says that the Supreme Court has appellate jurisdiction over all cases arising under federal law with such exceptions and under such regulations as Congress shall make. Uh, so what are those exceptions and regulations? Um, I remember in law school having a vigorous argument with my great teacher, Akhil Amar, who was here at the Constitution Center just a few weeks ago. And he insisted that Congress had the power to shrink the size of the Supreme Court if it disagreed with its decision. And I said, that's outrageous. The Constitution doesn't explicitly give Congress that power, and uh, nor does Article Three, and therefore that would be an assault on judicial neutrality. Well, Akhil, as he so often does, may have uh, gotten the better of that argument just by pointing to precedent, because for better or for worse, there are lots of cases throughout American history when the Congress has, in fact, shrunk the size of the Supreme Court. The original Judiciary Act said there, should, there had to be six justices, but then when the Federalists uh, lose the election of 1800, this lame duck Federalist Congress wants to deprive Thomas Jefferson of an appointment, so they reduce the size of the court from six to five. Uh, it goes back up to nine in 1837, uh, which gives Andrew Jackson two additional appointments. But then during the Civil War, there was a real uh, battle with Andrew Johnson. Tell us what, what happened then. Right. So, of course, after um, President Lincoln's assassination, his vice president, um, Andrew Johnson, becomes president. And it's fair to say nobody liked Andrew Johnson, um, and particularly Congress didn't like him. In fact, they disliked him so much that they eventually tried to – they eventually impeached him and tried to throw him out. But in the meantime, they actually passed a law that prospectively abolished a seat on the Supreme Court so that even if somebody died during his administration, he wouldn't have the power – to fill that spot. And once he was out of office and Grant came into office as president, Congress passed a law which actually restored that seat so that Grant would then have the power to fill it. Wow. Um, and it sounds like that was the last time that the court, that Congress succeeded in changing the size of the court. But of course, there was a famous failed attempt in 1937 when Franklin Roosevelt uh, said that he wanted to uh, pack the court by uh, it was a complicated uh, scheme for every justice who failed to retire. He'd get a certain number that, that he could appoint. And uh, Congress, unpersuaded by Roosevelt's claim that the court was overworked, uh, rejected the court packing plan. 
Um, can you imagine a justice, a president in the future trying to change the size of the court? I suppose I could imagine it. I think um, it probably wouldn't succeed for the very same reason it failed with Roosevelt, who was enormously popular. So if Roosevelt wasn't able to do it, um, it's hard to imagine some other president might be able to do it. However, the Supreme Court has become increasingly unpopular uh, over the years as well. So it may or may not be impossible to imagine an alignment of forces uh, so that uh, coming together that would perhaps try to weaken the court by manipulating its size. Well, given that fact, that uh, you're surely right that uh, future presidents wouldn't try to get away with it, was there anything to, to my argument with Akhil? I want one last <laughs> <laughs> shot about whether oh, I might have of been Of course right. there was. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It, it, there'd be a lot, uh, especially under some of those modes we talked about earlier. For example, under text. Um, text doesn't specifically enumerate a power in Congress to be able to abolish Supreme Court term or, for that matter, expand or contract its size. So if we were a what used to be called a strict constructionist, we could argue that under Article I, Congress lacks that power, and therefore you win. Excellent. Good. I'm so glad you came to the Constitution <laughs> Center today. Take that, Gail. Um, he, uh, I, I actually can, I'm going to ask you to adjudicate one other qu question because it was really interesting. He was so wonderful when he came to the center, and it was such a privilege to pay tribute to this wonderful friend who's not only one of the greatest scholars of the Constitution, but really one of the greatest teachers, and that's his calling. He has this unique ability to translate the Constitution to citizens and students of all ages. But the dispute we were having was whether secession was unconstitutional uh, in 1787 or whether it took the Civil War to make it so. And I uh, said that the framers were divided on it, citing Madison and Federalist 39 about the dual sovereignty when sometimes the states act in a uh, sovereign cap capacity and sometimes we the people, uh, sometimes we the people of each state are sovereign and sometimes we the people of the United States are sovereign. Akil cited both Wilson, who insisted that we the people of the United States were sovereign from the beginning, and also the fact that uh, I think Madison said that secession would not be permissible. To, 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 was he right? Well, uh, I'm a little biased on that question since I grew up in Alabama. Mm -hmm. um, and, but because I grew up in Alabama, I don't think secession was uh, permissible. I suppose um, the argument for secession basically treats the Constitution like a contract, um, presumably with the provision in it that allows one to opt out of it. But if you don't look at the Constitution as a strict contract, but as something, let's say, more um, sacred or um, special, then opting out doesn't become an option. Um, and so I, I think opting out wasn't um, a, an option, and I'm willing to go down with Lincoln on, on that one. Great. Uh, well, uh, dear listeners, please do read Akil Amar's wonderful new book, The Law of the Land. It's a, a riveting account of the role of geography in shaping both Lincoln's constitutional vision and that of other justices and is uh, creative, and, uh, and you'll learn a lot from it. It's really great. Okay, what's the next question? Why are Supreme Court of the United States justices so reluctant to abide by the code of conduct for U.S. judges or put their financial disclosures online? So uh, first let's review what the code of conduct for U.S. judges is. It was adopted in 1973 and it, quote, includes the ethical canons that apply to federal judges and provides guidance on the performance of official duties and engagements in a variety of outside activities. Uh, it applies to U.S. circuit judges, district judges, international trade court judges, federal claims judges, but it does not apply to the Supreme Court. Why? Good question. Uh, one reason is practical. Um, if there's an ethical dispute, 
on the lower courts, it tends to be adjudicated by judicial councils who are composed of uh, other judges from the circuit. Uh, the chief judges of the circuit often play a role. But on the Supreme Court, there's no one above them. So if there were a dispute, uh, who would decide it? You could create a roving panel of Supreme Court justices to adjudicate ethical complaints against their colleagues. The justices say this would be uncomfortable and it would be also be politically charged about who sat on it because a decision that a judge, uh, justice, uh, had to be recused would uh, could create uh, tie votes. It could change the outcome of cases. The reason the Supreme Court is an odd number is so that you can have a, a, a majority and uh, a recused justice would make that harder. That's another reason that Justice Breyer has given for the refusal of the court to apply the code of conduct to itself. Uh, the justices for a long time had not uh, issued financial disclosures, uh, uh, and uh, there have been controversies uh, about this. Uh, uh, in 2009, Justice Thomas didn't disclose his wife's income, and, and, and that led to some uh, public comment. Uh, but in June 2014, the nine justices did publish their recent financial disclosure reports in paper form. and. Uh, Groups like the Coalition for Court Transparency have urged them to post them online. And in fact, some groups like the Center for Responsive Politics have in fact posted those disclosures uh, online. Getting back to our discussion of Congress's power over the court, could Congress apply the Code of Judicial Conduct to the Supreme Court? Would that be constitutional or not? It's a very interesting question, um, and there are proposals to do that all the time. Um, they obviously haven't succeeded uh, so far. Um, some people will argue that Congress has got that same power uh, based largely on the same things we've just been talking about, its power over um, the court's jurisdiction and, and its size. One might be then able to argue that perhaps um, ethics could also be something they could uh, uh, control. Um, but there are others who would argue that any attempt to pass legislation that controls ethics insofar as the court is concerned would be unconstitutional because it would be like tinkering with the court's tenure uh, or status, and that's thought to be unconstitutional. So even though there, there have been laws passed from pretty much the beginning of the republic to the present, they haven't generally dealt with the Supreme Court's ethics. So, for example, even in 1790, Congress passed a law that dealt with bribery and actually provided that judges who were convicted of bribery would be disqualified from office, but it was judges and not justices. So the court is often thought to be sort of sacrosanct insofar as legislation is concerned um, that would deal, try to deal with the judge's misbehavior because, in part, we've always had impeachment as a way to keep the judges on, justices honest. Interesting. And uh, Michael is uh, the nation's leading authority on impeachment and uh, uh, advised uh, Congress during impeachments as well. Yes, which are thankfully rare. <laughs> <laughs> but just to tie it into an earlier question, yeah. because of the wonderful pensions that exist for judges and justices, it's actually very um, – it becomes hard to get a judge or justice off the court even when they've been accused of misconduct and sometimes they'll hold on to their positions for dear life because they keep getting paid and they want to hold on to their pensions. Um, and that's one reason why even when justices, excuse me, judges have been convicted of criminal violations, they don't necessarily resign. They want to keep getting paid because the Constitution provides undiminished compensation for judges. So it becomes hard to actually use impeachment sometimes to get people out of office. You've got to rev up that process uh, and trying to convince members of Congress it's in their interest to 
consider impeachment is not as easy as one might imagine, but it does exist, at least in theory, as a check on the Supreme Court. And what happened to the judge who didn't want to resign? Well, there have been a few of them, and they have been, uh, each of them has ultimately either been impeached and convicted and removed from office, or because the process has been revved up, uh, the judge eventually does resign. Note to Wrongdoing judges everywhere. Uh, Michael will ensure that (laughs) Congress gets you out. Uh, Thankfully, that's that's rare. I shouldn't ask pop quiz questions, but around how many judges have been impeached over American history? Uh, A little less than 20. Oh, there we go. Um, And so one might say that's great because it might suggest that there hasn't been that much judicial misbehavior. But on the other hand, there have been a number uh, who have resigned, um, often under protest, but for misconduct. Very interesting. Okay, I think we have just a few more questions. What's the next one? Next one's a big one. Is there a case we should be watching for in June that has not received a lot of attention? Uh, There is the great Arizona redistricting case, and we had a wonderful podcast on it uh, not long ago with Michael Morley of Barry University and Nick Stephanopoulos of the University of Chicago. It's a great case because many say that political polarization is one of our biggest problems, and some say that uh, gerrymandered district contributes to that polarization. Um, The argument there is that by creating safe seats, the Congress reduces the incentive that used to exist for Congresses to go left or right to win the primary and then to come back to the middle to try to win over swing voters. If the seat is safe, the claim is there's no need to move back to the middle. Others dispute that and say, as Larry Kramer uh, uh, of uh, the Hewlett Foundation Stanford Law School did in a recent lecture, that the real cause of polarization is sorting, the fact that red and blue uh, people tend to live in the same places and it's not gerrymandering that creates polarization. Regardless, this Arizona case is incredibly interesting because in response to gerrymandering, a couple of states have experimented with other nonpartisan ways of drawing districts. Four states, Arizona, California, Idaho, and Washington, have uh, authorized independent commissions made up of nonpartisan people who are not in public office. Arizona did that by a state referendum. And now the Arizona state legislature is suing the commission, saying that they've unconstitutionally usurped authority granted to the legislature by the U.S. Constitution. It's a textualist argument to go back to our methodologies. Uh, The challengers in the legislature cite Article 1, Section 4, which says the time, places, and manners of holding elections for senators and representatives shall be prescribed in each state by the legislature thereof. And the legislature says the text and also the history of this elections clause clearly gives redistricting authority to the actual body of state representatives, or at least a a group controlled by the legislature, the commission says legislature should be read more broadly to include the legislative power of the people, which is exercised through popular referenda. This form of direct democracy, the commission says, should be considered part of the legislative power. And since the people are supreme over the legislature, the challengers say it makes no sense to constrict their supreme authority. And that question about how democratic the Constitution is, I think is our next one. Do you want to add some thoughts on uh, sleeper cases or or go to the final question? No, but I I was thinking about when um, you were talking how this may be a chance to even think back on Bush versus Gore Mm -hmm. because back with Bush versus Gore, one of the questions in that case had to do with whether a state or a court could or could not have the power to be able to resolve dispute over election and the Constitution actually provides that legislatures have that power 
and there were a few justices, but not enough to get the court itself to decide this, but a few justices thought no legislature should be in that position, not courts, and they said no. That's why the court in Florida made a mistake, because it should be the legislature dealing with this, not, not courts. So this may be a chance finally to cite Bush's score, or at least some part of it. Yeah, you've written about Bush v. Gore. Do you think that Article Two argument was more persuasive or less than the one the court actually adopted? Um, I don't think any of the arguments <laughs> are terribly persuasive in that case, but I think it was. Um, but it seems to be sort of related. It does take us back, of course, to the basic question of um, whether or not the reference to legislatures or, or legislative power is meant to be strict. Um, that is to say, only refer to legislatures, or should it be thought more? Um, to encompass things that legislatures have authorized. One might recall that in Bush versus Gore, the, the court actually was following through on a legislative scheme. So that's one reason why that argument wasn't terribly persuasive here. But in this case, I think it's much more probably, uh, the argument's much uh, presented more cleanly. Um, and I think it'll be a very interesting question, which takes us back to all those methodologies we talked about earlier. Yes, yet another reason. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, learn those methodologies. Um, our final question relates to direct democracy. What is it? I know that the Declaration of Independence declared our nation to be a republic, and the word democracy is not used in that document. However, is the Constitution designed to form a democracy or a republic? Does the original document before being amended actually call our government a democratic or republic government? I'm aware that the individual's liberties are supposed to be preserved in our government, and likewise, the Pledge of Allegiance declares our nation to be a republic. How did the two similarly different types of government get mixed up in our case? So one thing we know is that the framers feared mob rule. They were concerned about Shays' rebellion where uh, debtors uh, refused to pay creditors. They were concerned about uh, property rights. With the preservation of property, said Madison, was the first object of government. And they put in place all sorts of checks and balances to dilute the direct power of the people. Um, there are all sorts of barriers to direct democratic decision-making. There's the bicameral Congress with two houses. There's the fact that the president is chosen through this extremely complicated and ornate electoral college. Uh, there's the fact that only one branch of Congress in the original Constitution was elected by the people. That's the House. Uh, and that every other branch is selected in an indirect manner. Uh, and then we um, have things like the Republican Form of Government Clause, Article 4, 4, Section 4, which says the United States shall guarantee to each or to every state in the Union a Republican Form of Government that's known as the Guarantee Clause. It's the only mention of the word republic in the original document, which does not contain at all the word democracy. Uh, so I think it's often said that we live in a constitutional democracy or a democratic republic. Uh, you uh, have written the leading casebook on the legislative process, which talks about uh, the limited powers of the House and the fact that it can't do anything without the uh, consent to the Senate. Uh, why don't, I'll give you the last word about whether we are a republic, uh, democracy, or something, some mix of the two. Well, it may be um, uh, noteworthy that the Constitution doesn't really describe itself as any particular form of government, although um, we do uh, abide by the Constitution, and we're here at the wonderful Nas National Constitution Center, so whatever description we use, perhaps we ought to use the word constitution in describing our form of government. Um, and at the same time, it may be also important to recall that the original framers did not trust small-d democracy. They didn't trust the people of the United States, uh, at least uh, in, a, in, uh, in a direct sense, to make 
critical decisions or maybe even many decisions uh, um, that were important. So, for example, the president isn't chosen directly, but through the Electoral College. And as you just mentioned, all these other counter-majoritarian measures. So we're sort of forced to think back upon the framers and why they didn't trust people uh, generally to make decisions, but instead they created a system that dilutes popular control and essentially puts important decision-making and all sorts of either representatives or people that are not even subject to elections, such as justices, which brings us full circle back to the Supreme Court of the United States and our, and our discussion today about why the court matters and why what it says about the Constitution matters. Beautiful. That was an excellent closing argument in the spirit of our podcast, which we will now have to rename Ask Mike and Jeff. We're gonna have to, I think we need to set up a new hashtag, Ask Mike and Jeff NCC. That was a great discussion. Thank you so much for illuminating our listeners. Um, please, uh, ladies and gentlemen, check out uh, Professor Gerhardt's wonderful books, including The Forgotten Presidents, uh, as well as the superb uh, conversation that we had about it here at the NCC, which is on video and on our website. We've got a bunch of exciting town hall events coming up. Our traveling town hall debates continue across the country in the spirit of the Lincoln-Douglas debates, co-hosted by the Federalist Society and the American Constitution Society. Just last week, we had an incredible debate about whether Citizens United was correctly decided in Boston. And on June 16th, we go to New York City uh, to debate the question, is NSA mass data collection a violation of the Fourth Amendment? In the meantime, we'll continue to have these wonderful We the People podcasts every week as we approach uh, June, which is uh, sweep season, blockbuster time at the Supreme Court. Um, and as we've been talking about today, we'll culminate toward the end of June with important decisions uh, ranging from the future of marriage equality to the future of the Affordable Care Act. So those are all sorts of good reasons to join us for the next of our We the People constitutional podcasts. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.